our message. This is the opening message of what is now expanded from five and then to six to seven parts. I don't know that it'll go to eight, but eight would be the longest that it would be. After that, we're going to do something we did for a couple years, and yet we haven't done it in a couple years. We're going to do summer psalms, oh, and proverbs, if any of the preachers want to do proverbs. There's a lot of positive feedback about summer psalms in 2017 and 18, and we'll be doing that till about mid-September, just so you know where we're going. This morning's message is really an explanation for why we are going to have this entire series of messages. Why is it necessary that we even have this series of messages? You might have noticed in most of the verses that were read this morning a common theme. And that common theme involved the world. Not the physical world, not what we stand on, not what we can dig in or children play in, but the world system, that evil world system under the control of Satan that is opposed to God and Christ. And we're going to see that the Christian is, in fact, engaged with that world system, either in one way or the other. And in the following messages, we'll start to explore specific aspects of how this evil world system under the control of the prince of the power of the air, under the control of Satan, by God's permission, how it engages in spiritual warfare against the Christian. We want to develop a Christian worldview. All that means is our view of the world should be through the lens of Scripture. We should think about different issues, and you see some of them up on the screen, we should think about those issues not as the world thinks, not as our media wants us to think. We should think about them the way God thinks about them. We know how God thinks about them from Scripture. And so we need to learn to think biblically. If we think biblically, we are thinking God's thoughts after Him. We're going to look at this week this world system and its influence in general terms. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at three specific ways that the world system seeks to influence us, brainwash us, and conform us to its evil image. Then we're going to look at the gay and trans agenda, a single agenda. They both have the same goal. And I, I don't want to deal, uh, uh, steal our brother David's thunder, He'll be preaching a two-parter as well. The first one being the proper starting point to think about things. And then he'll get into it specifically. The fifth and last Sunday of this month, our brother Joey Shavs will be preaching on abortion. And then this, these last two, we haven't settled on the order yet. But the Christian and government, and some of that really relates to us right now. Uh, even masks, even uh, the, the COVID lockdown. Uh, how's the Christian supposed to respond to onerous and repressive uh, mandates from government officials? Where is the line drawn? 
hard and fast where one should obey government and where one needs to echo the words of uh, Peter and John to the Jewish ruling authorities when they said, look, should we listen to man or should we listen to God? When they were forbidden to stop preaching the gospel, they said they're going to listen to God. They're not going to listen to man. So we'll understand a little more about that. And then we want to look at, uh, our brother Gilson's going to preach either a one or two-parter, it hasn't settled yet, on race, racism, and reparations. And we want to look at race, racism, and reparations from a biblical standpoint. And oh yes, the Bible actually does have something to say about reparations. And our brother Gilson will teach us about that. So let's get into this. This world system and its attempts to influence the Christian in a general sense. We'll look at three specifics next week. We're going to look at this subject today. We're going to have to move along quickly uh, because time is short. Uh, We're going to look at it as the believer's life, the world's influence, and we're going to combine them, the believer and the world. So those are the three headings that we're going to look at this topic under. Let's begin by looking at the believer's life. The believer's life should glorify God. For you have been bought with a price. That's Christ's blood, his life's blood, his death. He gave his life. That is the price that every believer in Christ has been purchased with. Not not with temporary things that like silver and gold, but with the imperishable blood of Christ. You've been bought with a price. What logically follows from that? Therefore, he's about to tell us what logically follows from this infinite price that was paid by the very Son of God on the cross. We remembered that in the Lord's Supper this morning and in the beautiful words of our brother Jim. Therefore, glorify God in your body. That is the purpose of your life and mine. If we were to just give one statement about what the focus, what the object is of every single aspect of our life, what we do, the words we speak, the thoughts we think, the desires we have, the motivations that move us, the attitudes that come across, every single one of them should be to glorify God. Later on, five chapters later, four chapters later, at the very end, Paul is going to say this, so then whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. In fact, you and I will not glorify God by our life unless the following is true. Paul would write this to the Corinthians in his second letter to them, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In verse 9, he says this, We make it our ambition. We make it our ambition. Does anyone here have ambitions? You know, I remember when I, when I was growing up, if I grew up, I'd wanted to be a fireman. I was dissuaded for the, 
from that for certain reasons, but that was my, in high school, that was my desire. I had that as a life's ambition. You have your own ambitions, not just when you were younger, but even now. What is your ambition in life? And ambition drives us towards the acquisition of that ambition. It drives us toward that end goal. 2 Corinthians 5.9 tells us, this is what Paul says all Christians, the apostles and all Christians should have as a life's ambition. We make it our ambition to be pleasing to him. Is that your life's ambition this morning? That more than anything else in life, you want every single aspect of your life to be pleasing to him. You you and I will not glorify God if that is not the ambition that drives us every waking moment. Now, none of us are perfect. (laughs) Believe me, that is not my conscious driving ambition every waking moment of my life. Should it be? Yes. But it's not. Don't let any shortcomings that you might have in any area get you down. God has given to every true believer in Christ the Holy Spirit to dwell in them. It's the Holy Spirit living, reproducing the life of Christ in us. The Bible calls that sanctification, making us more like Christ each day, each moment, each situation, each decision, each desire. The Holy Spirit can give you the victory over any area of life. The believer's life should glorify God. The believer's life is not his own. It should imitate Christ. Paul writes this in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. I've been put to death with Christ. When Christ died and when I believed in him, it is as if I died on the cross. Christ died in our place, but we are in a sense spiritually crucified with him. And it's no longer I who live. I died. How can I live again? It's Christ who lives in me. In other words, if it's not us who's living, but in a sense, it's Christ living in us through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, reproducing the character and life of Christ in us, little by little, then what should our life look like? If, our li- if Christ lives in us, what should our life look like? It should look like Christ's life to some degree, an ever-increasing degree. If our life doesn't look anything like Christ, maybe Christ doesn't live in us at all. Maybe, as he would write to the Corinthians, maybe, indeed, you have failed the test. Christ isn't in you at all. The life of Christ lived in us should produce the same evidences in terms of character that Christ himself displayed when he walked the earth. The believer's life is lived by faith 
in Christ. He says, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. It's trust and faith in Christ and the power of his Holy Spirit to reproduce the life of Christ. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. If I do truly live for Christ, if his life is being reproduced in me by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, then my life should look like his. And Paul cites two key ways. At the very end, I've underlined it. Christ loved me. He loved us and gave himself up for us. So, if I claim I am living the life of Christ, Christ lives in me through the power of his Holy Spirit, I should love him. I shouldn't love this world. I shouldn't love the things of this world. I should love him first and foremost. And he sacrificed for us. I need to sacrifice for him. I need to lay my life down. My life is not mine to live as I desire to live it any longer. I make it my ambition to be pleasing to him. I can only do that by living out the life of Christ by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit more and more each day. The believer's life should be lived for God. Paul says this, after 11 chapters in Romans of doctrine, of theology, deep theology, important theology, and the gospel, and an explanation of the gospel, the most important aspect of theology as it might relate to us. He says this, the very first thing, therefore, in view of all this theology I've given you in the first 11 chapters, therefore, what logically follows from the gospel? I urge you, I beg you, I entreat you, I plead with you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. This is the foundation of it. God's mercy towards you and I in the gospel, in giving his only begotten son for us, in drinking that cup as our brother Jim referenced, the cup that should have been for us, the cup of God's wrath on sinners. Christ drank so you and I would not have to. I urge you, brethren, by those mercies of God, Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. The Jews came and they presented to the priest to offer on the altar a sacrifice, a lamb, a goat, an ox, a pigeon, or a dove even. All acceptable sacrifices at different times and for different purposes. We're not presenting an animal God is asking us to present ourselves, not as a dead sacrifice, a living sacrifice, a holy sacrifice, the Jews. God specified it in the law that when you bring an animal, it can't be crippled, it can't be blind, it can't be diseased, it can't be lame. It had to be without spot, without blemish, in perfect health. It had to be the best of your flock, the best of your herd. 
You gave the best to God. God wants us to give the best of ourselves to him, present it a living and holy sacrifice. Look, a sacrifice costs the Jews something. A sacrifice is going to cost us something temporarily. We don't get to live the life we might desire to live in the flesh. We need to live our life. Whatever is near and dear to us that is an offense to God, that is a stench in the nostrils of God, we, we sacrifice and have nothing to do with. In point of fact, it's not a sacrifice at all because the blessings of God that flow out of obedience just cause those things to fade away. They, they don't even entice after a while. This present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. And he says it's your reasonable. As you know, Paul wrote in the Greek language of the day, that word reasonable, we get our English word logical from that Greek word. This is your logical. This is what makes sense. This is what logically follows from the mercies of God that we present ourselves, and it's our logical priestly service of worship. See, he uses a particular word here, not a word that talks about waiting on tables or doing the work of a deacon. He uses a word that refers to priestly worship. Did you know that the New Testament teaches that every single believer in Christ is a priest? A priest is in a special class of individuals. A priest isn't someone who stands up here. Every single one who has been born again by the Spirit of God is according to the Scriptures. Check out 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. We are a royal priesthood. Every single believer is a priest. And every single one of us has that priestly service of offering ourselves as a sacrifice to God, a living sacrifice. Let's think biblically now about the world's influence as it attempts to influence the Christian. The believer's mind should not be influenced by the world. Do not be conformed to this world. Don't let the world compress you, form you into its mold. Do not be conformed to this world. Do not be molded by this world. Do not be made to look like this world that is opposed to God. But be transformed. Here, Paul uses a word. I'm gonna, I don't tell you this very often. I'm going to tell you what the Greek word is here because it sounds a lot like an English word. The Greek word here is a verb metamorpho. Sounds like metamorphosis. What, where does metamorphosis come into play? Moths form a, a cocoon. You know, the caterpillar forms a cocoon, and it becomes a moth. A moth. Some caterpillars form a chrysalis, and they become a butterfly. I want you to think about this. This is a complete and utter transformation. If you show, showed a child, uh, like a tomato hornworm, and then you show the moth that it turns into. This big, uh, as far as moths go, it's, it's an attractive moth. Okay, it's not like some butterflies, but it's not a bad-looking moth. And it's big. 
If you showed a young child that, and you said, these are the same creature, you know, your, your little child, if you could think, is going to think, oh, mom or dad, they're off their meds, okay? You know, they don't look anything alike. It's complete and total transformation. Think about this. Maybe you have experienced this before. Have you ever had a butterfly land on your shoulder or your arm or you're sitting down outside, land on your thigh? Maybe you have shorts on, and it didn't even just land on the cloth. It landed actually on your skin. Have you ever had that happen? I, I've had that happen. I can tell you what I didn't do. Oh! Oh, oh, oh! Bug! Bug! No, it was a butterfly. It's beautiful. It's pretty. It's delicate. It's no threat. Now, picture a big green tomato hornworm crawling on your arm, okay? Even some of the toughest guys in this room, if they didn't, if it just happened to land on them, they might, oh, they, they might react and brush it off. But you don't do that with a butterfly. God wants us to be transformed from the ugly caterpillar that this world produces into a beautiful butterfly that he produces through the new birth and then by the power of the Holy Spirit. Be transformed. Be metamorphosized. Totally different. The Christian, the true Christian, looks nothing like the worldling, like the person in the world who hasn't trusted in Christ, who hasn't repented of their sin and turned to Christ. What's... He gives us a, a reason, a purpose for doing this. He says, so that you may prove, you may test, you may put God to a proper test. God says that. In Malachi, he says, come now, test me now in this. Sure, it's wrong to just test God with doubt. It's wrong to test God with the wrong motives. Thou shalt not test the Lord thy God, Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy. But there are some proper tests. God wants you to prove. He wants us to prove that his will is good and acceptable and perfect. If you're here this morning and, and you profess to have trusted in Christ, but you, think, you know, this Christian life isn't all it's was supposed to be cracked up to be. You know, I, I'm just not getting it. This is more struggle than, than sweet fellowship with God. I'm just not getting it. I, I can't believe this is God's will for my life. I'd like to suggest something. If, if that sounds like you, either to a great extent or a small extent, then I'd like to suggest that to that degree, small or great, you have been conformed to this world. You have not been transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is what he says, the renewing of your mind. That only happens through God's Word. God's Word is what renews our mind. Oh, you're not much of a reader. You just can't get into the Bible. Praise the Lord. Listen to the Word of God. 
Stream it to your phone, to your smartphone. Buy the Bible on CDs, if anyone still does that. Maybe there's some old-timer here who does it. You can get the Bible. You can get it read. You can actually get it acted out by professional actors. So when there's dialogue, they're trying to capture the, emo the emotion that perhaps took place. There, there are ways to consume God's Word. But you need God's Word. Don't be but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's going to be God's word. The more transformed you are in your thinking, in your mind, the more you will come to realize in every situation and aspect of your life that God's will is good and acceptable. Yay, it's perfect. Can we expect anything but perfect from a perfect God? The believer's mind should not be influenced by the world. The believer's heart should not love the world. John says this. This is a command. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. It's not optional. We don't get to decide whether we're going to do this or not. By the Holy Spirit, John commanded that we do not love the world. And then he says this. If anyone love the world, the love for the Father is not in him. Now, your translation might say the love of the Father. I translated it this way for a reason. Of is used in quite a number of ways in the New Testament. It could be the love of the Father, meaning the Father's love for us. That's probably not the case here. It could be the love that's possessed and owned by God. That's not the case here. Or it could be love for the Father. That's the one that fits best here. In fact, Jesus Christ himself taught that very truth. And that's why I decided to translate it that way. Jesus Christ said in the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, in the middle chapter of that sermon, in chapter 6, verse 24, Matthew 6, 24, Christ said this, No one, no exceptions, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will cling or hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, is what he was talking about there. You can't serve two masters. You, you either love one and hate the other. You can't love the world and love God at the same time. You might say you love God, but you don't if you love the world. The believer's heart should not love the world. What can the world offer the believer? What are its little trinkets that it can't offer us eternal life? It can't offer us eternal reward. It can't offer us to be with God and Christ forever in heaven. Here's what the world can offer. Three things. And these are categories. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. These three things, all three of them, are not from the Father. They're from the world. You know something about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life? We actually encounter those three things very early in the Old Testament and then very early in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, Satan, in the form of a serpent, tempted Eve in the garden. Oh, 
you won't die. In the day you eat of it, you will be like God, knowing good from evil. And what does it say in Genesis 3? When the woman looked and saw that the fruit was good for food. It was good to look on, lust of the eyes, good for food, lust of the flesh, and was desirable to make one wise, the boastful pride of life. She took of the tree and did eat, and then she gave to her husband right there with her, and he ate. We encountered it there. Hey, this, is, this brought about the fall of man, and we live in that fallen Genesis 3 world, which is why we have this series of messages. But we encounter it early on in the New Testament. The Lord is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And after 40 days of fasting, Satan comes to him and tempts him in three areas. Yes, the lust of the flesh. Command these stones to become bread. The lust of the eyes. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world and said, I'll give you these if you bow down and worship me. And the boastful pride of life. Look, here's a way to cement your messianic claims right from the start. Here, I'll take you to the pinnacle of the temple. Cast yourself off. He tempted Christ in all three areas. Whereas he succeeded in Adam and Eve's case, and in the case of all of us at some point in our life, he failed in Christ's case. He did not give in to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the boastful pride of life. Why should the believer not love the world? The world and its lusts are passing away. They're temporary. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. There's permanence versus that which is transitory, that which vanishes like a vapor. What is our life? It's even a vapor. 80, 90, 100 years. Such a short time compared to eternity. It doesn't even scratch the surface of eternity. <clears throat> the believer should not love the world because everything in the world is going to pass away. It's all going to be burned up, according to Peter. In 2 Peter, he writes that. Let's think biblically now about the interaction of the believer and the world. The believer should not love the world nor the things in the world. It's very easy to say, you know, you ask me, uh, you know, I say, no, 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 brother, no, sister. I don't love the world. How hollow those words are if I love the things of the world. The test is, do I love the things of the world? The believer should not love the world. The believer should not be friends with the world. You as spiritual adulteresses, not literal physical adultery, spiritual. Instead of being wholly devoted to God and Christ, our heart is devoted to something else. Maybe it's my pick-em-up truck. You know, I, I think I told you once before, yeah, yeah, have you seen how some guys are with their pickup trucks? I mean, they're waxing it, they're polishing it, you know, they're, 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 
they're accessorizing it. They spend so much of their free time on the, on the pickup truck. Not every guy, but some of them do. Somebody wrote a book for husbands, Christian husbands, on how to treat their wife. And the title is, Treat Her Like a Truck. Our heart needs to be devoted to God. You know, I, I, you might say something to me. I say, oh, no, no, you're so wrong. I don't love the world, but I'm friends with the world. You spiritual adulteresses, do you not know that friendship of the world is hostility towards God? As believers in Christ, we can't even be friends with the world. Sure, we rub shoulders with the world when we go to work, if we're not working from home over the last year. You know, and in the marketplace, the Lord's not talking about geography and location here. Oh, unbeliever there, I'm not going in there. No, that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about location, geography. He's talking about character and behavior. Friendship of the world is hostility toward God. Look, if you can go to where the world goes, and you can act like the world and engage in the same behavior as the world, that is hostility toward God. I'm not saying it. You may not like hearing me say it. James wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. God said it through the pen of James. Friendship with the world is hostility towards God. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, even wishes, is the enemy of God. The believer should not be contaminated by the world. Pure, spotless, and undefiled religion in the sight of God and our Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their distress, their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. So sad that some people, I'm not going to judge whether they're saved or not, but their soul is so dark so black that when it's stained by the world, you can't even notice the stain. You know, you, got, you all notice, if you know, if you know me well, that, that most of the time I'm wearing black pants. I can't tell you the number of times I don't look when I sit down and I sit on something, and then I'm walking around with a big stain on my bottom. Or... You know, I'm, I'm your basic barbarian. My wife can try to dress me up. She can try to remind me to take human bites. And, you know, I end up with food all over. So, black pants, you don't see the stains. But you wear something white. Chocolate, strawberries, uh, a, a sip of wine uh, fr from the table next to us. <laughs> no, uh, uh, whatever, lipstick, whatever it happens to be, everything shows up on white. The soul of the Christian should be pure and undefiled. Any association with the world, anything that rubs off, will be an obvious stain. White linen are the garments of the saints. It symbolizes their righteousness. It's figurative language. Whether or not we're going to be dressed in white is another story. That's not the point. The point is, is that the white linen is the righteous deeds. It says it in Revelation. Is the righteous deeds of the saints. White. Anything from the world is going to have an ugly stain 
on whiteness. If you cannot see this morning, if you're someone who names the name of Christ and you can't see how the world has stained your soul because of your friendship, your association with the world, if you can't see that, then ask yourself, how white is my soul? How pure and undefiled is my soul? The believer will be corrupted by the world. Look, we're not going to transform the world. It's impossible to transform the world. That world system God has given up on. We can share the gospel with individuals, and they might, by God's grace, come to faith in Christ and be changed. We're not going to uncorrupt the world. The world will corrupt the believer. Paul writes to the Corinthians, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. That's the way it works. You might think you'd like it to work differently. Oh, I'm being a good testimony to the world and so on. But once you start to become friends, once you start to do what the world does, little by little, white becomes gray. Gray becomes medium gray, and then dark gray, and eventually black, and we don't notice the change. Bad company corrupts good morals. God said it. In view of that, be sober-minded. As you ought, it's your obligation as a believer in Christ. To be sober-minded, you need God's Word in your mind. And he says, stop sinning. The believer will be corrupted by the world. The believer should not live according to the course of this world. Has anyone ever taken a cruise? My wife and I never have. Okay, but you've taken a cruise. Okay, uh, I was in the Navy. You know, whether it be a submarine or a surface ship, there is a course, there is a destination for that ship. Same thing for a cruise ship. Maybe you'll leave some port in Florida and you're headed to a Caribbean isle. There is a path, a course that it's going to follow. That's the same thing with the world. Paul writes, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly lived according to the course. You were, the Christian should not be living in those trespasses and sins any longer. You were dead, not you are dead. You are alive in Christ. These things, trespasses and sins, these are part of the old dead man. Formally lived, not currently lived, according to the course. There is a destination that this world system is headed to. It has a course. It's plotted a course. The captain of that ship, Satan, is making sure it gets to its destination. That destination is hell, the lake of fire. That's where it ends up. Make no mistake about it. We formerly lived as unbelievers in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And we were by nature, here's the destination, children of wrath. If this is the ship we're on, the ship of this world system, the destination is wrath. 
Everyone on that ship will one day cry out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The believer in Christ has Christ as their substitute. He cried out those words on the cross so that you and I would never have to. The believer should not live according to the God of this world. Now he explicitly tells us who is the captain plotting the course of this world. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you formerly lived according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You all formerly lived in the lusts of your flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath. Satan is driving the unbeliever to wrath, to the wrath of God. That's his end, and he's taking as many with him as he can. They were by nature children of wrath. Oh, you know, I love what verse 4 says. Do you know how verse 4 starts out? You were by nature children of wrath, but God, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. But God, two words that changed everything for the believer in Christ. It's what God did in Christ on the cross. The believer is at war with this world system. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of of this darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness. Look, we don't wage war against fellow man. That's not the Christian's job. We don't wage war against the government. That's not what the Christian is supposed to be doing. Our warfare is spiritual. It's it's against invisible forces the true rulers of this world, not those who sit in seats of power in state and federal governments. We we wage warfare against spiritual rulers, spiritual powers, the world forces of this darkness. That's Satan who is behind the prince of the power of the air, behind the darkness of this world. The Christian is at war. How many soldiers are friends with the enemy? If you're engaged in a war, how, how, many, how many U.S. Marines would break from a patrol or a mission and walk up and shake the hands of someone in ISIS? No, they're at war. They're not friends. The unbeliever, though, we've been talking about the believer. What about the unbeliever? The unbeliever is blinded to the gospel by the God of this world. The same unholy, evil force, the prince of the power of the air, Satan, that wages war against the believer, he doesn't need to wage war against the unbeliever. Why? Paul says, even if our gospel is veiled... It is veiled to those who are perishing. 
If you don't see the truth of the gospel message this morning, that Christ died in man's place, that he died bearing the sins of the world on the cross, shedding his blood and laying down his life, if that's just a fairy tale to you, then your mind, then you are perishing, according to Scripture, and your mind has been blinded. Those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. If you have not trusted in Jesus Christ, and Christ alone and what he did on the cross for your salvation, repented of your sins, turned from your sins, and turned to God and cried out to him, then your mind is blinded by Satan, according to Scripture. I'm just a messenger. I'm telling you, you can read the words right on the screen. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. Why? So that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan does not want the unsaved to behold the beauties of God in Christ and what he accomplished for man in the gospel when he hung on the cross. If you're here this morning, I say to you what Paul the Apostle wrote in Romans to believers in Christ. I urge you, I entreat you, I beseech you by the mercies of God found in Christ and the gospel. Turn from your sin. Acknowledge you need a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Cry out to him. The scripture says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He will not reject you no matter what your sin. If you do that in complete faith and trust, he will receive you. He will save you. He will cause you to be born again to a living, eternal hope. But if you think the gospel message is foolish, please know who's pulling your strings, whose tune you're dancing to. It's the God of this world. He has blinded your mind so that you might not see the gospel, the most wonderful message that man has ever heard. The world wants to corrupt the believer in Christ. In this day and age and in our culture, this is most easily seen by the promotion of three things related to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Worldly corruption. Lord willing, next week, we're going to look at these in a little more detail. Sensuality, materialism, and selfishness. Okay, I'm not going to deal directly with pornography. I don't want to get into debates with anyone as to what is pornography and what is art. You know pornography when you see it. I'm not going to get into debates with someone on what is soft-core pornography. Is the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue? I've never seen one, but I've seen covers. I don't want to get into a debate that whether that's soft-core porn or not. Instead, I'm going to cut the legs out from under porn. I'm going to pull the carpet out from under its feet. And we're going to look at what the Bible says about sensuality because everything that's said about sensuality applies tenfold to pornography. Pornography is sensuality on steroids. But I don't just want to target that. I want to target the more respectable 
way the world tries to conform us and corrupt us. Materialism. And then also selfishness, self-love, self-centeredness. There's a one-to-one correspondence with all that the world can offer in 1 John 2 to these three things that, Lord willing, we'll look at next week. So, thinking biblically about this world system and its influence, what are you thinking this morning? Are you thinking biblically? Today, will you begin to pray about the worldly influences in your life? Will you begin to pray daily that you do not enter into temptation? The Lord told us in the, Lord, in the disciples' prayer, when he taught the disciples to pray, that we should pray about not entering into temptation. When we don't do so, we ignore the words of Jesus. Will you begin to pray daily that you don't enter into temptation? Let's pray, and then I'll dismiss you. Father, uh, help us, dear God, not to love this world. We don't have the strength in and of ourselves, but your Spirit has the power to enable us to live above this world system, to go through this world system and not be conformed to it. Oh, Lord, help us by your grace and for your glory that we never become friends with this world. Oh, Lord, remove the deception that leads us to believe that we can be friends and not be corrupted by this world. Lord, help us to live our life each and every day for you. Transform us, we pray, by your word. We ask this for your name's sake. Amen.